Good evening. Before I begin tonight, I wanted to tell all the husbands in the room that if at any time you feel a sharp nudge coming from your left or your right, it, it may simply be your wife inspired by the Holy Spirit. So don't be too hard on her. My name is Kevin Holm, and I do think of myself as a pretty regular guy. I have an active life with three daughters. I coach youth softball, teach seventh grade religious ed, and manage a small business. I love the Iowa Hawkeyes and a good craft beer. Like many, I've got a mountain of things to discuss whenever I step into a confessional booth, and even now, much of what I confess has to do with how I struggle as a husband. Love your wife as I have loved you. That sounds simple, doesn't it? Love your wife as I have loved you. It was a beautiful July day in 2008 when those words first came to me at a church in Boone, Iowa. You see, I'd escaped to my brother's place for a weekend, and I was sitting in the second pew at Sacred Heart Catholic Church. I had just finished about a half an hour of, of deep prayer, and I quieted my mind and listened for the Lord to answer my question. My question was, what am I going to do now? A few months earlier were the Cedar Rapids floods. Thousands of homes were lost. Businesses and lifestyles changed forever. A lot of people were shocked at seeing the images of our little corner of the world showing up on the national news and streets that you parked on or places you'd worshipped just a week before were now under six feet of water. And with all of this darkness and chaos, there was something more paralyzing and more destructive and heart-wrenching than even the loss of a home that was going on in my life at the time. Divorce. You see, on the weekend that I'd escaped to my brother's home, it was not because of the floods. It was because the nightmare that my family was being dismantled by divorce seemed to be becoming a reality. The first time I heard my wife use the D word, I ignored it. It was just a fight. She doesn't mean it. Now, over the years, I'd heard it a few more times, and I'd even used it as a threat a few times myself. When it was said, we were always fighting, and I always dismissed it. When I heard it in May of 2008, something was different. It was delivered with a very cold seriousness that I had never heard before. It ripped through me like a sharp wind, and it left me with this feeling of complete fear and utter denial. You know, she's Catholic. She does not believe in divorce. She's just being dramatic. She's just trying to scare me into getting what she wants. It's classic Shannon, I thought to myself. More denial and more anxiety came in the following days. Look, I'm not a bad guy. I don't cheat on my wife. I don't stay out at bars all night. It's not like I've ever hit the woman or wasted our money on ridiculous things. I work hard to provide a nice home for her and the kids. I'm a good guy. I'm a good man. How can she say that to me when I'm the one that's got to put up with all of her crap? This is going to blow over. She'll get over it. 
I'm a good man. She'll see. Now, this way of thinking was not new for me. This is how I'd been justifying my behavior for years. This is how I justified harsh words towards Shannon and the kids. This is how I justified my internet habits. And how I justified neglecting the one person that I should have always been watching. And that person may not be who you're thinking of. I neglected to see, to truly see, the person that would look back at me in the mirror every day. I should have been watching myself. Now, for years, Shannon tried to get through to me. She asked me to go to marriage counseling. I don't need to go to counseling with some guy with a textbook telling us how to live our lives. We can figure this out on our own. We don't need someone else's help. I agreed to it once, and then I didn't show up for the appointment. I don't need counseling. You need counseling. This same argument happened many times over the years. Well, now that the D word was out and my anxiety levels were on the rise, I finally showed up for counseling. Within five minutes of the first session, it was clear this was not going to blow over. This was not going to be a fight that just lasted a few days and then things went back to normal in our busy lives. She was not just going to get over it like she'd done so many times before. She was serious. She'd had enough. Enough of being ignored and unsupported. Enough of my temper and constant contradiction. She'd had enough of being controlled and being pushed away. Enough of me putting myself ahead of our family. Enough of not being loved. She was done. I'm only here to make sure he doesn't fall apart. She spoke her piece and she got up and left the room. When the door clicked shut, it echoed like a gong. And there I was, finally in a counselor's office, trying to understand what had just happened. That first wave of truth crashing over the top of me. My wife does not love me anymore. As soon as I said it, I broke down sobbing. Now, this may sound harsh, but Shannon knew how weak I was at the time. She knew exactly where my faith was. She knew where my selfish cho choices were leading me. She knew how shallow my heart was at the time. And even though she was preparing to end our marriage, she still cared enough about me to get me to someone she thought could help. After a few minutes, after Shannon leaving, I looked up at her counselor who remained totally silent this entire time. And I desperately asked, what am I gonna do now? What do you wanna do? He sympathetically asked me. Save my marriage, I sobbed. His reply was honest. That's going to be tough, he said. 
That was the first day that I'd really looked in the mirror and I truly saw who I'd become. And it was nowhere close to where I intended to be. Over my lifetime, my relationship with God wasn't bad. I was always a believer, but like many people, there were times that I felt close to God and other times that I didn't. My first impression of our Lord came from a 15-foot-tall ivory statue uh, of the risen Christ at St. Peter's Lutheran Church in Rockwell, Iowa. And I remember looking at that statue as a young boy and just feeling that wonder and awe, like he's watching over all of us. And there at Rockwell, Iowa, at this church, is where I first really came to know God, our Father. At 16, I was confirmed at Trinity Lutheran Church in Blue Earth, Minnesota. Uh, I began to understand there what the Lord's presence was and began to feel the Holy Spirit at certain times in my life. And I began to talk to God and pray, especially when I was dealing with difficulties. Then I went to college. Sorry. <laughs> now, to say that Jesus and I did not hang out very much in college would be an understatement. <laughs> I really needed him at that time in my life, too. A two-year relationship had ended with, within just weeks of starting school, and my folks had moved to South Dakota, so I kind of felt like I had no home other than the tiny brick-walled dorm room. <laughs> and my minor in nocturnal chemistry was kind of making it difficult to get to class on time. This is when I really did need God the most, but I was asleep. I, I was depressed. I was filling my life with things that could never possibly fill our hearts. I know back then that God was carrying me through a lot of that part of my life, but I had no idea at the time. The year I turned 21 was a tough one. My sister had gotten pregnant at a young age, and we knew ahead of time that the baby had a birth defect and that he may not live long. Now, this woke me up, right? I was praying again. I was asking God for help to give us some time with this baby. I had this amazing amount of faith that it was growing, this confidence that, that he's going to take care of all of us. Because if God can raise Lazarus, he can certainly heal baby Alexander, right? Everything is going to be fine. I felt great. I was so sure of this. So sure that I was not prepared for what happened next. On September 21st in 1997, after complications rose during labor, my prayers changed. In a waiting room in Mason City at Mercy Hospital, I was begging and pleading with God to give my sister 10 minutes with her son. Alexander never got the chance to take a breath, and he passed before he was born. I sat with my sister that night while she held her lifeless son, and something inside of me broke. My faith was shaken, and it took a hit that night that lasted for years. Prayer became almost non-existent in my life, and I blamed God for not doing something to save my nephew. During the same time, another long relationship had ended with the girl that I'd thought about marrying, and I developed 
bitterness toward love, toward relationships, and that stayed with me well into our marriage. Ultimately, it was my dad that helped me find peace with Alexander's passing. And I told him that I'd wish that Amanda and Alex could have gotten just 10 minutes together. And he said, I get that, Kevin, but just think about how wonderful his life was. He lived in the safest, warmest, best place on earth. He never knew anything but love and protection. And that's a pretty good life. I also saw that the 10 minutes that I was praying for could have been a lot harder for my sister. You see, I was probably praying for the wrong thing. God knew better. He always does. When I met Shannon, my life was pretty good. I was working at radio at the time. I was making a name for myself. I had the absolute dream set up, living in a house uh, right on Clear Lake with my brother and another friend of ours. We had a boat docked in the backyard. Great group of friends who would we'd frequently light up karaoke bars around northern Iowa. <laughs> I was pretty happy. Who wouldn't be? I was in my early 20s. It was a great scenario. Everything felt like it was going well. A few girls, uh, girl struggles aside. Then I met her. Shannon and I were like magnets right from the start. We shared a common upbringing. Our friendship grew very quickly with conversations that often lasted until 4 o'clock in the morning, even if she had to be to work at 6. When she threw a Halloween party on her parents' farm, I noticed that she started to see me as more than just a friend. The story's actually kind of ridiculous, and I'm, I'm probably going to get in trouble for telling you, but here we go. I was feeling pretty good that night. It was an enjoyable party. We were having a good time. And I was sitting at her mom's kitchen table, leaning back ever so charismatically in a chair, eating a cold hot dog wrapped in cheese, when Shannon walked in. She took one look at me and froze, eyes locked on mine like a tractor beam, and then quickly turned around and walked out of the room. I knew what that meant. I knew what that look was. And I leaned back a little further in my chair and thought, yeah, I am the man. Now, there is a little bit more to that story and a slightly different version, if you ask Shannon, but I'm, it's only a certain amount of time that we've got tonight, honey, so we've got to move on. So now Shannon and I were officially dating. We were meeting parents and spending lots of time together. When Shannon's grandmother passed away, I got a glimpse into her family's rich Catholic faith. Now, I'd attended Catholic Mass before, and I was pretty good at being the sit instead of kneel Catholic visitor, very respectful, very you know, quiet. And I'd never seen a family other than my own family have such an integral, rich faith. And they really leaned on each other in times of loss. And they leaned on God in times of loss. Catholic tradition and practices were also intriguing to me. And my future mother-in-law was very knowledgeable and always willing to share, whether I asked her to or not. <laughs> so now you remember how I said Shannon and I were like magnets. Well, this was amazingly true, but the thing about magnets 
is they can repel each other just as strong as they can attract. And this was true with Shannon and I as well, and we fought very early on in our relationship. Now, Shannon was a single mother when we met, so we were also trying to figure out how, her, how our oldest daughter, Mackenzie, would fit into my life and how I'd fit into hers. So we had a few struggles. Then, four months into dating, we were surprised by something small. Something very small. She's not so small anymore. In fact, she's a pretty amazing daughter. Now, as scared and confused as I was at the time about the future and about becoming a father, my heart is what took over with this thought of, I'm someone's daddy. And that was an amazing feeling. Now, the night we told Shannon's parents about our small surprise was not an amazing feeling. In fact, it was the most uncomfortable single night in my entire life. I was terrified. Now, this is a true story, okay? Shannon's father had shown me how many guns he owns and how good he was at digging holes with his skid loader. Truth. I'd also had a walk with Shannon's aunts. I think there's about 25 of them. When we got far enough away from the house that they couldn't hear me scream, they all turned at me and said, what are your intentions with our niece? I thought I was dead meat. I thought I was just going to be gone at the end of this night. So as the night was winding down, Shannon, in her ever so subtle ways, just drops the news right in the middle of the kitchen table, out of left field. Hey, guess what? <laughs> and Mary Ellen Daniel began to wind up. Now, I don't remember exactly what she said, but I remember, I remember at the time sort of sliding down as far as I could underneath the table. <laughs> and with that arm's reach was Myron. So I was a little terrified. Then God stepped in. The phone rang and compelled by what I can only describe as divine intervention, Mary Ellen got up and answered it. It was the prayer chain at Immaculate Conception Church in Charles City, Iowa. <laughs> when she ended her call, Mary Ellen took a deep breath and she looked at Shannon and she said, you're stupid. And then she turned and looked at me and said, you're stupid too. And then she asked, what are you going to do now? I blurted, we're going to get married. Now, I'd not actually asked Shannon to marry me at this point, so this may not have been one of the most romantic proposals in the history of the world. A few weeks later, I had the ring, and, and I did it on bended knee, as it should be. So, you remember, too, how I was telling you that I was pretty happy with my life when I met Shannon. And from one year to the next, there was a lot of changes. I moved in with Shannon in a tiny house in Mason City, had to leave my brother and leave the lake house. I also got a promotion at work, so I was doing the morning show up very early. Shannon was a registered nurse in critical care, and adding this to being a newlywed and a father to two small children in diapers, and it was pretty obvious that we created a, a tough situation for starting a new life together. 
And I was a clueless dad. I was alone three nights a week while Shannon worked. And I'd get up at 4 a.m. I'd have to have the kids to daycare, be on the air by 5.30, be home after 5 p.m. And then a year later, while chasing down my career, we gave up all the family support and moved out to Colorado. My mother-in-law was right. We were stupid. There's a reason God tells us that some things should wait for marriage. You see, Shannon and I had an amazing wedding, but a wedding is not a marriage. We never took the time to get to know each other without the kids. We never had the fights that you should have before marriage, the, the ones that help you set boundaries of what you will and won't put up with with each other. Instead, we rushed things, and we jumped in with our eyes closed, and we had to wing it as we went along, and my skills in winging it were not so good. I remember when we did move out to Colorado, Shannon had to go two weeks before the girls and I could come out. When we did finally get out there, we got in late at night at a trip that lasted 12 hours longer than it should have. I was exhausted. I was drained from the trip. Lots of stops, lots of diapers. It was a bit of a challenge, and I got in, and we went immediately and crashed. Well, the next morning, Shannon and I got into an argument. I blew up, and I took off. I'm going to go cool off. I'm going for a drive. Took off. And I took a drive up into the mountains of this place called the Grand Mesa, and it was beautiful. I had this four-hour drive. I blew a tire coming down some goofy road on the mountain, and it was great. It was like an adventure. So I'm excited. This is a beautiful place we live in. And I went home, and I said, Shannon, guess what? She wasn't so excited. You see, it didn't even cross my mind what she'd been through in my absence. And not just my absence that day when she called her mom wondering if I was ever coming back, but in my absence in the previous two weeks. I didn't even think about her being alone in a new place, separated from her children, with no family, no friends, and no husband around. To top it off, there were forest fires in the mountains above Grand Junction that week, and it created these red northern lights so literally, she's out there by herself with ash falling from the blood-red sky and nobody around. It didn't even cross my mind how difficult that must have been. I was simply focused on myself, focused on saying goodbye to my friends and family and, and this trip that I had to make out. And when I got there, I wanted everything to be perfect. I focused on myself. Now, I will say, Grand Junction, Colorado really was an amazing place. Uh, we truly, truly enjoyed living there. And it was there at Immaculate Heart of Mary Church that I decided to begin RCIA and made the decision to convert to Catholicism. I had a fantastic sponsor named Chuck Rosa, and I brought a lot of cynicism about the Catholic faith, and much of it was misunderstanding. And I grilled Chuck and our priests frequently, and they were fantastic. They never got defensive. They never got short-tempered. They explained things to me in very calm and understanding ways. And as just a few weeks before Easter Vigil was upon us, I was struggling with, with the concept of transubstantiation and with the nature of the Eucharist. Chuck calmly asked me, Kevin, do you want to be Catholic? I said, well, I'm, what do you mean? I'm here, aren't I? And he said, well, yeah, but you know, you do not have to do this. 
And honestly, if you can't put your faith and belief into Catholicism, then you should not convert. He reinforced with me that if I felt my relationship was stronger with Christ in the Lutheran Church, then that's okay. And he said, look, you have to walk with Jesus the best way that you know how. Wait. Right. This was my choice. Nobody was forcing me to be here. Not even my mother-in-law. Nobody was forcing me to convert. This was my choice. I could choose to pick this faith up and actually put it into action. That was a true revelation of understanding what faith really is, really can be in my life. So Easter 2001, I chose to become a full member of the Catholic Church. Problem. Bad habits are hard to break. To say that I was obsessed with my career in radio was an understatement. Shannon expressed her unhappiness with the hours that I was working and that my attention was never on her and the kids. I'd skip family outings and spend countless hours watching TV. I called it show prep. Or I'd be playing video games or just finding ways and means to ignore her and the kids. And when her frustration would boil over, my responses were always loud and they were always selfish. Don't you understand what I'm trying to do here? I'd yell at her. And I began to treat Shannon like she was an obstacle that was holding me back in my life. By the time I was 27, I was completely burned out on radio. And I know Shannon was burned out with my constant complaining and being angry about what I couldn't change at the radio station. I literally focused on everything in my life that was negative. And letting go of radio was hard. It was a dream of mine. But I just couldn't keep running that race. And I knew my family couldn't keep it either. I did get really lucky when Big Dog Satellite was looking for a new manager. And I have been very blessed to have the faith and support of the owners, Brad and Michelle Barrett, ever since. And it's been 13 years now. So I decided to make the job change. Right afterwards, we had another baby, Olivia. And we planned it. <laughs> On purpose. So now with three kids and a business to run, a business to run you would think that I'd wake up and see what my responsibilities were. Maybe spend some more time at church or in prayer with my family. But again, bad habits were hard to break. And I still refused to see that I was doing anything wrong. And continued my spending time on things that were a distraction from family and marriage. And this pattern continued for years, long after we moved to Cedar Rapids. I constantly insisted on my own way. Our fights became worse louder and longer. I'd become so pompous that when we would fight, I admitted very little doing, wrongdoing. And then I wouldn't stop preaching at Shannon until I felt like I'd convinced her that I was right. Shannon was trying to bring some peace. She would spend an entire day cleaning the house, running the kids around, trying to get everything set up perfectly so that when I came home, there was nothing for me to be crabby about. 
somehow I always found something, something to yell about, or, or I'd make a hurtful or sarcastic remark about something she'd spent the whole day doing. I got so offended when she repeatedly suggested counseling. I mean, after all, I told her what was wrong and what she needed to do to fix it. What good could a counselor do? Look, it wasn't just Shannon who tried to say something to me as well. My sister, my folks, my in-laws, friends, they were all tossing out warnings. My brother-in-law told me for years, Kevin, if you want to be happy, just shut up. It's <laughs> a wise man. And it's not that Shannon was the perfect wife, and, and I truly believe it does take two people to make a marriage work. It does take two people to break a marriage as well. But my authoritarian attitude towards everything was just suffocating. In public, we'd have a happy facade, but in private, we were a mess. Our kids were getting old enough to notice as well. When I'd come home, they'd seem to run and hide, fearful of another round of fighting. My dad once told me that in marriage, you have to do your part and get to 100%. Sometimes it's 50-50, you're each giving equal shares, and sometimes it's 70-30. Sometimes it's 90 or 100% that you've got to give because your spouse is not able to do much, and you've got to make up for the difference. He'd tell me this, and I'd shake my head at him like, yeah, yeah, I understand, yeah. I'm doing my part. Shannon lived for 10 years giving 90% or more. I just didn't see what I wasn't doing until the day she walked out of that counselor's office. Now, I didn't come to the realization of my mistakes all at once. Our counselor had given me a start that first day. He gave me some tips on how to begin listening to what Shannon had been trying to tell me for years. Now, the only challenge was that at this point, Shannon was not in the mood for talking. She was not open to dialogue after 10 years of this. And every conversation we had ended with me realizing yet another way that I'd failed. Each counseling session revealed that saving our marriage was very unlikely. The movie Fireproof had come out that year as well. I remember sitting in the theater just soaked in tears because the Caleb, the, the character that Kirk Cameron had played in that movie was so much like me. It was like watching every mistake that I was making in marriage on a big screen. This was a very hard and very lonely time. And for those of you that have been through separation or divorce, you understand how anxiety can be commanding in your life. How racing thoughts fills your days and sleeping becomes near impossible. When I did sleep, waking up was far worse because you have a few lucid moments where you forget what's going on in your life. You forget your failures and your pain and that it hits you every morning like a ton of bricks in the chest. You realize once again that the reality of your ruined marriage was your fault and you relive that moment of hurt every day. I was 33 years old, the same age that Christ was when he died, and I had contributed nothing. 
Every time I thought I hit rock bottom, I found that I still had a little bit more room to fall. And that includes the first time that I met with Father John Gossman, who's our parish priest at St. Joe's at the time. The first half of our conversation was more like a face-to-face confession. I painfully recounted every way that I could think of that I'd failed as a father and a husband. And when I finally stopped, Father Gossman leaned forward in his chair and sincerely agreed that I had been, in fact, acting like the south end of a northbound horse. I was truly shocked. Now, I'd never met with a priest before at this point, and I didn't really know what to expect, but it was not that much honesty. (laughs) Father John was truly a remarkable guide for me, though. At the time, being paralyzed by all this fear and anxiety was, was difficult. He helped me to focus on what I needed to do just to get through each individual day and grow. Pray each night and evaluate your successes and your shortcomings. And then don't see your shortcomings as simply failures. Look at them as points to work on the next day. Do what you can when you can. Focus on your kids. Focus on the family time, not on the pain and not on the fear. And then he gave me my favorite platitude of all. Do the right thing, not to save your marriage, but because it's the right thing to do. He was always real. He didn't sugarcoat anything. And he told me, it's going to hurt and you may still lose your wife, but you could be left with a good foundation for your family and for your future. He did leave me with one prayer suggestion that day as well that I believe rings true in any part of our life but was sort of an anchor for me at the time. God, grant me the serenity to accept the things that I cannot change, the courage to change the things that I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. And that's where my work began, on my knees every night. My mother-in-law, gave me this, this Catholic devotional, and I'd pray the rosary, the Holy Spirit, prayer to the Holy Spirit. Uh, I did a few novenas. Uh, My father-in-law gave me the 1900-year-old prayer to St. Joseph. That was one of my favorites. And I became, for the first time as a Catholic, I came to know Mary as our mother through praying the Memorari. I even wrote down a few prayers of my own in this little book. So my work continued in prayer, and that's where I realized what was missing in my life, what was missing in our marriage, and it was Christ. So I learned to pray, and through counseling I learned to listen. And on that July day in the second row pew of the church in Boone, he spoke to me like a whisper in my mind from the back of the room. Love your wife as I have loved you. I knew it was time for me to get uncomfortable. I had to let go of the things that I was clinging to and really focus on the people that I cared about the most. 
I had to be honest with myself about who I was. I had to be honest with other people about who I wanted to be. So a few weeks later at the same kitchen table where God in the icy prayer chain had shown me mercy 10 years earlier, I looked at my mother-in-law and I said, I haven't taken very good care of your daughter. No, you haven't, she said. And then she hugged me. I was incredibly lucky to have amazing people surrounding me during this time. My sister, my friend Jason, would listen to me talk for hours when I just needed to spin myself to sleep. One of my best friends uh, would listen. Going home to my folks' house was truly a sanctuary. I could just put it all down and just rest. My in-laws were amazing. Helped me stay focused on Christ. My father-in-law used to tell me, not in our time, but in God's time. My Aunt Jackie told me, Kevin, you come from good stock. I think she knew that I needed some words of encouragement. She wanted to remind me where I came from. There were so many supportive people on both sides of our family, so many supportive friends who helped sustain me through this time. I can never thank them enough. One friend, a friend in particular, Michael Rott, invited me to come to a group called Men's Fraternity, which was a Christian program written by Robert Lewis. It focused on improvement in being a husband and a father. Now, this was a great discovery for me because I began to understand that I'm not alone in my struggles. And I gained a Christian brother in Mike who truly understands the challenges of being a husband and being a father. And I think that's important for men, that we know we're not alone, and that when we need that support, we can turn to each other and speak each other's languages to help us be better at being a father, better at being a husband. Mike showed me great support in my goal of being a better version of myself, and I began to see that it's okay for me to struggle, but it's not okay for me to give up. And I can't thank Mike enough. He's been an amazing friend now for a long time. I started immersing myself in books during our separation and articles about Christian marriage and the scripture passages started to paint an amazing picture. First Peter chapter 3 says, Husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, granting her honor as an equal. Anybody feel a nudge? <laughs> and I thought to myself, what does it mean to live with your wife in an understanding way? I don't understand anything about her. <laughs> so it was in reading books like Love and Respect by Emerson Egricks and The Five Love Languages by Gary Chapman that I started to figure this out. You see, I don't have to fully understand Shannon. I just need to accept her. The understanding way that I think 1 Peter is talking about is it's not to... It's not that I have to understand everything about her. It's that I have to accept that she's not me. She's, she's not a man. She's a woman. She's not, her brain is wired completely different than mine, and that's okay. I don't even really have to like it. I just need to accept it. You mean all those times that I thought to myself, Shannon's just doing this to tick me off. What's just Shannon thinking for herself? How could I be mad at that for so long? 
This really connected with me in one of my counseling sessions. I was talking about how I struggled with the way that Shannon would not listen to me when I disagreed with her. And I went on for 15 minutes about how right I was and that she needed to respect my knowledge and, and sometimes I just know about certain things and, and she should just quit arguing with me. A counselor smirked at me and he asked, Kevin, what's wrong with just saying, okay, dear? Huh? He said, Kevin, your wife told you what she wanted. She told you why it's important to her. And your response was to tell her that she was wrong? What would have been so bad about you just saying, okay, dear? Oh. You see, I didn't always have to understand Shannon. I just had to, with a good heart, put her needs ahead of my own ego. Now this was an epiphany. It changed how I saw a lot of things. And to be honest, it's still one of the biggest struggles and something I have to work on every single day. I learned at the time that I can't count on male instinct to be a good man. You see, instinct tells men that we need to be in charge. We need to protect what's ours, provide, procreate. Can you imagine if that's all we're good for, guys? Look, I've got to be so much more than the guy who pays the rent, the guy who yells at everyone and scares the monsters out of the closet. I've got to be a better listener. I've got to be a supportive friend. I, I, I've got to lead my family by example and serve my wife. Luke chapter 9. If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. So I took up my cross. More responsibility at home. I started taking care of bills, doing laundry, reading with the girls. Um, started doing things that Shannon for years had just been doing alone. I read that love, real adult love, is not about how we feel. It's about what we do. Love is a verb. It's an action. I can choose to make any situation better, or I can choose to make it worse. And it's my job to plant the seed of affection in her heart. You ever talk to people who've been married for 50 years? Do any of them say, oh, it's been wonderful, we're so happy, every day for 50 years has been like vacation. <laughs> no, they get that look in their eye like this and they go, yep, it's a lot of hard work. <laughs> so now I was learning what hard work in marriage was. I was doing my 90 to 100%. And I was doing it alone. Simply because it was the right thing to do. As time went on, carrying my cross included learning different personality types and how to speak Shannon's love language, which is quality time, by the way. I struggle with that sometimes, too, still. Now, I learned about the crazy cycle and how it's hard to be the one to stop conflict, to step away after that fight starts. 
And it was simple words from men's fraternity that became another daily affirmation of mine, which was die to live. Die to live, die to selfishness, die to immaturity, die to ego, and die to the things that separated me from God and from my wife and children. That's when I came across Ephesians chapter 5, and it stopped me dead in my tracks. And it was the words that I'd heard many months earlier while I was praying at that church in Boone. Husbands, love your wives even as Christ loved the church. Lord, I hear you. I prayed. I don't know what you're preparing me for, but I'm here. I'm in. The answers are with us. They're in the Bible. They're through the examples of other people. He didn't just put us here and abandon us to instinct and our own devices. He speaks to us all the time. He spoke to me a week ago through a cousin of mine. His cousin had ran for Senate a few years back and, and had gotten out of politics when he started his family. And I was asking him, hey, are you looking at getting back in? Are you looking at, and he said, no, if I want, I'd have to uproot my family. I'd have to change my life. And then he said, and besides, there is no better place for my kids to see me than on my knees in our church every Sunday. God speaks to us all the time through many people. I realize that here at St. Joseph's. It was here that I came to know Jesus, who is my best and most supportive friend. Now, still in separation, I had faith growing in me again. I had hope growing in me again, but it was different this time. I was praying hard. I was open to him. I could feel the Holy Spirit flowing through me daily. I knew that God would answer my prayers. And the road was hard. And it wouldn't be easy most of the time. And I knew the answer might not be what I wanted. So although I was, I was trying to save my marriage, I was also preparing to be a strong father alone and to respect the mother of my children. Then 18 months of living separated, but in the same house, it happened. It was December of 2009 in the lobby of a downtown building in Cedar Rapids that Shannon's eyes met mine as she stepped out of the elevator. I put on a fake smile, but I couldn't muster starting a conversation. I was headed up to our lawyer's house, our lawyer's office, excuse me, to sign the divorce decree that Shannon had just finished signing. And that was it. We were legally divorced. There was no yelling match. There was no custody battle. There was no war over wagon wheel coffee tables. <laughs> and we actually used one lawyer. You see, we learned to do the one thing in divorce that we couldn't figure out in our marriage, which was compromise. So I bought a new house and started a new life. We had full joint custody of the kids. So half my week was with them and the other half I spent learning who I was in my new life. And I felt okay, incomplete 
at times, but oddly strong for a guy who'd just been through a divorce. I began to believe that everything doesn't necessarily happen for a reason, but that everything that happens can have a purpose, and a purpose in God's plan. My purpose was to be the best dad that I could. I accepted God's forgiveness, and I learned to forgive myself. And I found peace knowing that in the end, I did everything I could. It was just too late. In my last meeting with Father Gossman, we were talking about the future and continuing the right path. And I asked him about when is it okay in your life to move on, to move forward. And he gave me an amazing piece of advice. Don't date, he said. Your daughters have been through enough. And they can't have you sharing your attention with anyone else right now. Not for a long time. And besides, you never know what can happen. He grinned. I knew what he meant, but I'd accepted at the time that my marriage was over. In early 2010, I was invited to go on our company trip, which was an Eastern Caribbean cruise. I took a good friend of mine from, from college. And on one of the clearest nights that I'd ever seen, I was standing on the balcony of our cruise ship, just kind of talking to Jesus, just kind of breathing in the environment. I was feeling the weight of the divorce a little bit, and I'd realized that in ending the marriage, that I'd sort of lost some of that purpose that helped drive me forward. And I looked up at this amazing sky, starlit, dark night. It was beautiful. And I asked him, what am I going to do now? And he answered me again, love your wife as I have loved you. And I screamed back, what the heck is that supposed to mean? I'm glad my roommate was a heavy sleeper. <laughs> a few months later, I found out why the Lord's message for me had remained the same. Shannon and I weren't really friends at this point, and we kept our lives pretty separate, as divorced people tend to do. But when she lost a friend in a tragic accident, a high school friend, she turned to me for comfort. I thought that was kind of strange. And then she began hanging around at my house when she dropped the kids off for religious ed on Wednesday nights. I taught religious ed and she'd hang out at the house while we were, while we were here. I thought to myself, we're divorced, why is she here? I didn't even have a cold hot dog in my hand. I, you know. Some while later, Shannon asked me if I had time to meet and talk over dinner. I figured she wanted to talk about the kids. When we sat down, I looked at Shannon and I said, what's up? Huge Disney princess tears had welled up in her eyes, in these amazing brown eyes. And she said, why couldn't you have been this man when we were married? That conversation lasted seven hours. It was the first time that we had talked, really talked, in years. 
We spent a lot of time that night just apologizing to each other. And we reached a level of closure that few people who go through a legal divorce ever do. We both accepted what we did to break our marriage. As to Shannon's question, why couldn't you have been this man when we were married? The answer is because I had not accepted the man that God had planned for me to be. You see, I did not change me. Yes, I had to say yes to God. I had to do the daily work. I had to pray. But without him, without the people in my life that he influenced, that he talked through, I never would have had the strength to change. So Shannon and I became friends again. And then we dated. And we prayed and we counseled. And we dated some more. <laughs> and we took our time. And on June 11th of 2013, our youngest daughter, Olivia, walked me down a white sand aisle in New Mexico Beach. And before friends and family and God, Shannon and I renewed our bonds in marriage. I am so grateful to God for carrying me when I could not walk, for kicking me when I became too still, and for lifting me up to know my true purpose, which is to be an instrument of his love as a husband and as a father. Listen, the road that Jesus plans for us is not smooth. It's still not. Shannon is still a fiery four foot ten inch woman with an Irish temper who happens to be more intelligent than I am. <laughs> and I'm still a hot headed graying ginger who struggles when to figure out how to shut up. <laughs> In fact, the struggles are still as real as they ever were. When, when the members of CEO asked me if I'd be willing to do this talk, I thought, hey, this is a great honor to share my story which really is his story. <laughs> After getting Shannon's approval, I began to see how some bad habits have crept back into our marriage, back into my behavior. It's sort of like, you know, you invited the priest over for dinner and you got dirty socks on the floor, you know? <laughs> I was even called out this year by one of my best friends who noticed that I was struggling. I had a chance to listen to him a few years ago and he offered some prayers and some conversation with me. My friend Brown, I don't know if he knows it, but just that conversation really did help me to see myself more clearly and to do what I needed to do every day, which is die to live. There's so many more lessons that I could share, how Christ has shown me how to be a better husband and a better father. I know that it takes a daily commitment to prayer, to keeping, a, keeping an eye on that guy in the mirror. Every single day, you've got to look at yourself in the mirror. My only wish tonight is that our story might give people with similar struggles a little bit of hope and a little bit of strength. I know now what keeps pulling Shannon and I together. And it's not gravity, and it's not magnetism. 
It's Christ. It always has been. He held his bond between us, even through our legal divorce. And I know that anyone who reaches out to him in their time of need will find that he's there with his arms wide open. Not a Shannon. I'm still not perfect. I never will be, and I'm sorry for that. But I've got a good coach, and I'll keep trying. And you are so worth the effort. Thank you.